This is Alan Olson's America Dreams, the keys to life success, where we talk about how to live the life that you want to live. What are your dreams? What do you want out of life? And what defines success? Today, we'll be having a guest speaker join us, Liz Wiseman, the author of the best-selling book, Multipliers. She'll be with us in just a few minutes. But before we get to that point, I want to talk about creating a uh, a positive business environment around the workplace. You know, so often at times as we go to work, it's uh, it's where we spend the majority of our time if we're going to work day after day. And the more that we're in a place that we enjoy being in, it's it's a much funner experience. Um, when I started my my career, I started at the uh, the IRS. There, there were only, you know, I, I got interviewing late in the uh, the stage on college campus, and the only people that were uh, were interviewing on campus were people with three letters in their name: the IRS and uh, I think the CIA or something like that. And I uh, I decided that I would skip the CIA and go, you know, take the job at the IRS. But it was an interesting process of of working there. And I, I think they do an excellent job internally in making their, their employees feel good. They train them. They treat them well. Um, but the only problem is that if you're not on the inside, uh, you know, you don't have the same feelings about the IRS. And uh, so, you know, I was a newly married um, individual. It was about two and a half years into our marriage. My wife came to me one day and she says, Alan, you need to leave your job. And I said, why? She says, well, because... Uh, when I married you, I wanted friends. And I said, well, I have friends. She says, no. She says, when we go to the party and you announce where you work, I have no friends. And it's now my problem that I can't get friends unless you leave your job. So I said, okay. So I got the feeling that uh, you want me to leave and do something else. And she said, yeah, i like like you to go do something else. So... I was off on my career track, uh, went out, became a CPA, started in public accounting, and then um, I, uh, I I joined this firm of Groco. I uh, started at the big four after working 75-hour weeks and going from a, a consultant to manager in 18 months. I decided that uh, you know I wanted to do something a little bit different in my life. So I sat down and wrote out a, a job description and a plan for uh, where I wanted to be. And I said, I don't want to be commuting. I want to be in the same community. Um, I want to be serving with those I'm around. I would still want to be technically challenged. And, uh, and and so I went out and sought that job. And I remember when I went out and um, applied for the job, uh, there was an individual, the managing partner at the time was Barry Rogoff. He says, Alan, he says, uh, he says, where do you want to be in this organization? I said, Barry, I said, someday I hope to have your job, your seat. And he says, you want it right now? You can have it. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not ready for that. And I said, you asked me where I would like to be. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm just expressing kind of, you know, I want to go as far as I can within the organization. So, Alan, what is the key success? What is the key to successful management in your company? Well, you know, so it 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 ended up over a period of years that I uh, started with Groco. We put processes together. Um, I helped to build the technology and and the firm to what it is today. And um, you know, as the years passed by, there was always change in personnel, staff, but the uh, the, the constant of the, uh, the the core of that practice was Maury Greenstein, the founding partner. And his um, his right hand person Barry Rogoff, 
and uh, and and Barry would uh, would always do an excellent ma- job of managing Groco, and and Maury was just a phenomenal individual in front of clients and anybody, both within the organization and out, who he met. And so the three of us began um, on this journey, and um, about 12 years into it, Barry one day uh, decided that he would take a trip down to Hawaii, and he's going to go watch his uh, his daughter perform in the in the Iron Ironman uh, triathlon. And uh, while he was there, he suddenly dies of a heart attack. So we get a phone call that Barry's not coming home, and uh, it was devastating. We weren't really prepared for this. Uh, and Maury turned to me and he says, Alan, I'm 78 years old. And, uh, and, um, he goes, I don't have a lot of years left. What would you like to do? And I said, well, I said, why don't we continue to grow this organization? And, um, and, and so Maury said, uh, you know, if you want to do that, I'm, I'm right by your side and I'll give you all the years that I can. And, and so within the first two years, of becoming the managing partner, we grew the organization 65%. Wow. 65%. That's great. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was an amazing, um, a, a amazing growth and, uh, and experience, uh, and there were only two of us. So we kept hiring people. We kept putting uh, people in place. But it all started with, first of all, we grew because we wanted to grow. And we grew because we had a good management team that had a very high level of trust within each other. So in creating the positive work environment, what we did is we started at the top and we said, you know, if we're going to you know, keep our people, we need to make sure that they're kept happy. And we put basically five different things that we, we had in place as we worked together. Um, here's a few of the, the steps that we took. Number one, we complimented our employees. We made sure that they understood that they were doing a good job, and we complimented them on times that they, they, they were recognized for things that they did uh, and did very well. Um, employees love to hear the feedback. In fact, when I wrote little notes about you doing a great job, those notes are cards. They stood up on the, uh, the, the side of their desk for a long time, you know, indicating as a reminder to me that they need to hear, employees like to hear compliments and like to hear more often. Second thing that we do is we put together constructive criticism. It doesn't do any good for uh, you to tell a person um, some remark and not have it to be honest. You know, if, if if there's an area that needs to be improved, be honest in your criticism, not destructive, but constructive. Give them ways that they can improve and become a better individual, that they can perform at a much higher level. Um, the more an individual uh, works on being constructive, uh, the better results you're going to get out of them. You know, and unfortunately, Steve Jobs passed away, you know, within the last two weeks. And um, but but there's a lot that's being said about this remarkable individual, about the way that he inspired individuals to do their very best. And uh, one of the, the comments that I heard on, on one of these stories was that Steve often would would fire individuals for for substandard performance. And uh, he would give people where this is where the bar is set. I want you to work hard to get there. And if, if they didn't make it at times, they'd fire him. But just as he would fire him, he would then hire them back as he understood the talent that these particular individuals had. And if they got the message, they, they had a certain degree of fear from Steve. And they understood that they didn't live up to expectations, that they wouldn't be around. 
but the people that came back were the people that were driven. Another thing that you want to do within the organization, things that we did, we planned uh, events that created unity. It's one thing to have um, a, a work environment where every day you go to work, but uh, but every one of these individuals are are part of a family. And uh, and the more you get to know their family, the more they feel bonded into the organization. So we'd have at least three events a year. We do something after tax season. We do a, a, a family picnic in the fall. We do a, a Christmas party. Uh, since my partners are Jewish, we call it a holiday party. But Santa Claus comes to our holiday party. And it, it's kind of fun. The uh, back some of my partners even sit on his lap. You know, how often do they get that experience? But it's it's all good and fun. Um, and, uh, and, and the, the unity events are really what pulls us together. We see each other's family grow up as, as, uh, as the years pass by. Um, the other thing that you need to do is you need to put a good bonus program in place and make sure that employees have that level of trust. If they work hard, they get rewarded. They get paid well. And so uh, as people feel incentivized, they, everyone wants to make advance their career and also have additional money to spend for their, meeting their needs. And the bonus program is a good way to do it. Last area is to have respect. Having respect in the organization is a key component to the work environment. It's like my partner, Maury, says, you don't have to like everyone in your organization, but you do need to have the respect for each other. If, uh, if employees respect each other, the level of trust will grow and you'll be able to move where you need to move much quicker. Thank you for sharing those tips, Helen. Well, you're welcome, Carolee. It's, um, it, it's, it's a real pleasure to, to have the role of a, a managing partner and grow an organization. We're going to learn more about how to build positive uh, role traits in an organization in speaking with Liz Wiseman. Liz will be coming on the show shortly. This is Alan Olson's America Dreams, The Keys to Life Success. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Liz Wiseman, the author of the book, Multipliers. This is Alan Olson's America Dreams, Keys to Life Success, where we talk about how to live the life that you want to live. What are your dreams? What do you want out of life? What defines success? Today we have with us Liz Wiseman, the president of the Wiseman Group and author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller book, Multipliers. How are you, Liz? I, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Alan. Good to have you here. Well, Liz, I understand that your firm is a research and development firm situated in Silicon Valley. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do in your organization? Yeah, sure. We we um, do research in the field of management and leadership, and we see as our mission to develop leaders who can take on the world's toughest problems. A lot of our research is in the area of intelligence and how well is intelligence being used inside of our organization and what can leaders do to find latent intelligence, unused, valuable intelligence, and put it to work in organizations to solve um, a business's biggest business problem or maybe um, a country's biggest problem and maybe some of our world's biggest social political problems. That's what we're all about. Wow. So what organizations have you worked with in the past or are you currently working with? Well, you know, first of all, my work goes back to 20-some years to Oracle. I was uh, with Oracle for 17 years where I ran their um corporate university. So I've done a lot of work with Oracle. Having left Oracle about six years ago, we started to work um, with SAP, with Gap, and to a great extent with Apple. And so we've been really, really 
fortunate to work with some of the really phenomenal uh, companies in this area. And since the book the book has come out, we've had an opportunity to work with um, Nike. Nike's a company that's really adopting some of the ideas in the book and putting them to work, and a number of healthcare organizations, um, some retail organizations, and really hundreds of organizations as we've been able to go out and speak and teach these ideas everywhere from Yale Medical uh, School and hospital chain to the military um, to businesses. Now, Liz, you just mentioned the book uh, Multipliers, and which is currently one of the best-selling books on Wall Street. Uh, let, let's start from the top. What what motivated you to write this book? Well, you know, the idea from the book started several years ago when I was at Oracle, and I ran the corporate university, so I got to work very, very closely with Oracle's executive team. And one of the things that Oracle is known for is hiring just brilliant people, and particularly just had a brilliant executive team. And I worked with this group of leaders very closely. You know, I had a very kind of close view and a great seat to watch their leadership. And I noticed that some of these leaders who were brilliant didn't seem to spark brilliance in the people around them. Some of these leaders operated in a way that, that in essence, kind of shut down the intelligence of people around them. They, they in a way, dumbed down their organization. They were smart, but people around them weren't smart. And I thought this was so interesting compared to some leaders, equally brilliant, who had this way of just provoking, invoking brilliance in the people around them. And I just started to wonder, why are we so smart and capable around this leader, but not around that one? I left Oracle, started coaching a number of executives in technology, saw this pattern with other leaders. And I went out looking for research because I wanted to provide some resources and tools to help coach a particular executive at SAP. I found that no one had studied this. And that's when I decided I was going to, my little curiosity turned to literally an obsession to study this, to find out why some leaders amplify the intelligence in others while other leaders drain it out of their organization. It was really, a, it became an obsession to know. You know, I, I'm curious when, when we look at these types of leaders that, uh, that you have those leaders that become inspiring and others are just really you know, at times demoralizing trying mm -hmm. to, but is, is, is this, is leadership really, uh, or, or is there such a thing as a natural born leader or is it, is it developed in, you know, in leadership? You know, surely there are people who have personality traits or skills that lend themselves well to leaders. You know, they have a natural advantage, much like any athlete. You know, some athletes are born with the advantage, but all of us can develop this capability. And as we, we studied this and we really looked at what these leaders um, that we came to call multipliers, what they do, you know, essentially all of the behaviors, the actions that they take are learnable, they're coachable. But what's more interesting is not what they do, it's how they think. And really what I think drives this dynamic and what really makes or breaks a leader is their mindsets, their assumptions, you know, how they see the world and how they think about the capability of people around them. And those are a little harder to coach. It takes a little bit more work to change some of the assumptions that you might have about the people around you. 
I'm just curious. So you have five people in a room, same set of facts, and, and you give them the same question or same task or objective. Certainly those five people are going to have different approaches. Is there is there a right way versus a wrong way? You know, in other words, as people, is there a, a style of leadership that works a lot better than another? Well, there's certainly characteristics that we saw across these multipliers. So what we did was we studied multipliers and diminishers. We found they do a lot of things alike, and there's a lot of room for different styles, uh, different approaches. But we, we isolated a small number of things that they do very, very differently. And we found a lot of commonality in these type of leaders that seem to use the intelligence of other people and provoke it and to grow the intelligence so people could literally, you know, do the best work of their career around them. And we found a lot of commonality in that. Hmm. That, that that's interesting. What are what are some of the uh, the good traits that you see when looking at leadership characteristics there that that really become inspiring to other people? You know, let me um let me share with you some of the traits. It starts really with with the mindset. And what we found is the multipliers have this basic assumption that the people they work with are smart and are going to figure it out. You know, they, they might make a few mistakes along the way. They might scrape their knees in the process. But they really have a belief in the intelligence in the people around them. You know, and think about it, Alan. If you had this assumption that the people around you were really smart and that they were going to figure it out, you would lead in some very predictable ways. Um, I mean, think about just as a parent. You know, if you've got this assumption about your children, you know, how are you going to lead? You know, here's what we found. We found that um, there were five disciplines, and I can I can briefly go through those with you. The first of all, how they manage talent. These multipliers tend to be talent magnets, and what they do is they identify the genius in other people, sort of their unique genius, their their native genius, the thing they do freely and easily, and they identify that and they put it to work at its highest point of contribution, its highest value for the organization. And they become magnets in that people flock to want to work for them. Um, the second thing we found is they have this very much a liberator kind of effect. And they realize that, you know, most organizations are based in hierarchy, job titles, job descriptions, levels, titles. And they level that playing field and they give other people space, space to think and space to do their very best thinking and their best work. Um, so they create an environment that's, it's, in some ways it's crazy to say, but it's safe to think. And it's shocking how many corporate environments, business environments, and others, people don't feel safe to actually think and to express their ideas. Um, the third thing we found is that they tend to be challengers. They, um, they make people uncomfortable because they ask them to do things that are extraordinarily hard. So they ask the big, hard questions that cause people um, that essentially create a vacuum between what you can know how to do and what needs to be done. And people kind of lean into that vacuum. They grow. They do their best work. They stretch themselves. Um, they tend to be debate makers. When it comes to the um, important decisions, they, they frame debate. They turn to debate. They let people weigh in intelligently, bring in data, and they debate these most vital decisions with rigor. 
not the small decisions. They, they may be a bit of a dictator or delegator when it comes to the small ones, but they're debate makers. What they do is they bring that debate forward so that when a decision's made, everyone understands it. They, they, they've seen the data, the evidence, and so they allow people to execute quickly. So, Liz, if 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 you're coming across a, a group of individuals as a, in the workplace, and let's say that they're just a complete dysfunctional group, where, where do you start with somebody like that to, in in leadership? I mean, can you can you train them how to be great multipliers with respect to uh, how do you put the level of trust within the, those individuals? You know, I think it starts with changing some of the assumptions. And one of the things, um, let, let me share an example of something one of our readers did. So there's um, a reader, Toby, in Sydney. He runs a web design uh, company. And he took this idea of a leader finding the native genius of the people um, on his team. And he did it for his entire team. As a management team, they sat down and they identified the genius of each person on the team. And they took turns going around and articulating that and sharing that. He said it was the best thing they've ever done as a team to really understand and communicate the genius that each person brings to that team. I think it does a lot to restore trust in an organization. So basically, when when trust, trust is a key element to get started, and then from there you start to build this... Uh... You know, the the greater report trying to bring out the better in, in the people as uh, as you're working to become the greater multiplier. Yeah, and there's some very, very simple starting points um, to leading like a multiplier. Um, one of the, the most powerful things a leader can do to be more of a multiplier is to start to shift the burden that they feel for doing the thinking, for having the answers. And most leaders really feel a heavy burden and start to shift that and share that burden with their team. Okay, we've been talking here today with Liz Wiseman, on the, book, uh, the author of the book Multipliers. And uh, we'll be right back with more uh, with Liz on, uh, on, on her book. This is Alan Olson, America Dreams, Keys to Life Success. Stay tuned. We'll be back again with Liz Wiseman. Welcome back. This is Alan Olson with America Dreams, the Keys to Life Success, where we talk about how to live the life that you want to live. What are your dreams? What do you want out of life? What defines success? We've been talking here today with Liz Wiseman, the author of the book, Multipliers, and uh, she's been giving us characteristics of leaders. Now, Liz, in your book, you classify the leaders into two categories, multipliers and diminishers. Can you tell me what qualities a multiplier has? Yeah, you know, before I, 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 I go through some of the things we found that these multipliers do, let me just, um, Alan, share the impact that they have on other people. What we found is, and it was really shocking to us in our research, when we asked people how much of your intelligence was being used by someone we came to classify as a multiplier versus a diminisher, what we found is that the multipliers were getting twice the intelligence levels of the people around them. You know, these leaders that we call diminishers, who tend to be empire builders, they tend to be a little bit of tyrants, they, they tend to be decision makers, know-it-alls, micromanagers, that they lead in a way that people hold back, they shut down, and our research showed that they got, on average, 48% of people's capability, their intelligence, what they, you know, their knowledge, their ideas, their insights, 
Multipliers, on the other hand, got virtually 100%. It was 1.97 times in our research. So there's this 2x effect. And, and, you know, here's where I think this gets really interesting. When we looked at not only what these leaders do, but the impact that they have on the people who follow them, the people who work with them and around them, the words that we heard over and over is that um, working for the diminishers, it was frustrating and it was exhausting. When people described working for the multipliers, you can imagine what they said. You know, you might think of someone who was a multiplier to you. The words that we heard over and over is it was, it was surprising to us. It was exhausting, but it was exhilarating. You know, it was, uh, they said, you know, she was shameless about asking me to do hard things. You know, I w- I'd go home tired, but I couldn't wait to get back to work every day. And so exhausting and exhilarating versus frustrating and exhausting working for diminishers. And what I think is so interesting is, you know, why is it that working at half of our capability, half of our intelligence is exhausting, but working at 100% of our capability is exhilarating. You know, I think it's a way of leading that could transform our work environments, transform the working experience from a tiring, exhausting one where people come home with little to give back to their families, back to their roommates, to one where people are growing and um, and exhilarating. You know, I, I, I love that, that comment about, um, you know, you're growing, you're exhilarating the, uh, you know, going to work every day with a passion for what you do day after day is is meaningful and uh, i often talk about the concept of uh, every one of us being on a timeline mm-hmm. you know and in you know there was a there's a guy that i met uh, a couple of weeks ago actually i teach class he's one of my students he comes up to me he says i Alan, i got a question for you professor he says uh, he goes here i have a situation in my life and um he says i you know i got overextended and i got too much debt on my home and uh he says, I, I, I need you to tell me what to do with my life. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Where do you want to be three to five years from now? And he says, I don't know. I said, well, I can't tell you what to do Will you tell me, and, until you tell me where you want to be. And so often when we take that back to the workplace and to your career and to your passion, so often – we get stuck in a rut of, you know, the politics or the things that in life kind of distract us and kind of weigh us down. And so it's really refreshing, Liz, to hear this, 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 the concept about the multipliers, about building those around you, bringing out the best. And, uh, and, and the research that you're bringing is talking about the emotional energy getting twice the amount of output. Yeah, it really is. And I, and I like the way you framed it, bringing out the best. Um, we wrote an article for Harvard Business Review, and that's what they chose to title it, bringing out the best you know, in your people. And your example is actually very reflective of what multipliers do. They, they don't provide the answers. So they eschew this model of leadership where the leader knows everything, directs, has the answers, you know, tells people what to do. And instead, they ask the vital questions. They ask the questions that engage and focus the intelligence and energy of their organization. And, um, you know, when you, you said, I can't tell you what to do, but you can ask a question that shifts that burden of thinking back onto the person, which is what 
they find exhilarating is to find the answer themselves. Um, it, we found it across virtually all of the multipliers that we studied is they have great questions and they really have developed the art. I, you know, I think it's one of the probably the most important executive skills is the art of asking really, really good, interesting, insightful and challenging, almost wickedly challenging kinds of questions. You know, Liz, I heard you recently speak at a uh, an event, and you're, there was a there was a very good analogy that not only can you take the uh, the, the role of a, a multiplier and diminisher from the workplace and put it into the home, but it's all about asking questions. I remember you giving this example of the diminisher on a personal experience to working with your kids. Yes. And maybe can you can you run through and give us for, for the listeners what uh, how you described a diminishing behavior versus the multiplying behavior? Oh yes, questions. and I've had so many diminishing moments as as a parent, and you know maybe because it's important to us, it's close to our hearts, and sometimes we over prescribe, over parent, and and we don't need to, and you know I I, I learned I learned to ask good questions in my home. It was first I learned this in my home. This is about 10 years ago. I've got four children now. I had just a mere three back then. And I was telling one of my colleagues at work, I'm like, you know, Brian, I'm a little bit of a, a dictator at home. I'm constantly barking orders at my kids, telling them what to do. And it's not working very well. You know, I become a bit of a bossy mom. And, you know, he acted shocked that that was the case. And, and then you know, I described bedtime to him. You know, come on, kids, go to bed. Come on, put that down, put that away, leave her alone. Come on, get your pajamas on. No, come on, come on, you know, get your teeth brushed. No, go back, use toothpaste. You know, I saw that, you know, get a book, read a book, you know, go to bed, get out of my bed, go back to your bed. You know, just constant barking of, of orders and telling them what to do. And it was creating chaos and it wasn't getting much done. And Brian said to me, he said, Liz, I want you to go home tonight and try something. I want you to go home and speak to your children only in the form of questions. No statements, no directions, just questions. You know, I thought this was very intriguing and, and a very interesting challenge. And I decided to take his challenge. I thought it was a wicked little challenge, but I decided to take it and go all the way. So for three and a half hours that night, I spoke to my children in the form of questions. And when we got to bedtime and I looked at my watch and I said, kids, what time is it? They said, well, it's bedtime. Well, what do we do at bedtime? What comes first? And the next thing I know, they've got their pajamas on. And once our pajamas on, what needs to get done? Well, we brush our teeth. Okay, well, who's going to be first? And the teeth are brushed. You know, what do we do then? Well, we get a book. Well, who's going to pick the book tonight? What book are we going to read? Who's going to read it? And fortunately, they picked my husband that night. So I was off the hook for that. And then what do we do? We say our prayers. Okay, and then what? And we go to bed. And they went and they got in their beds and they stayed in their beds. And I stood there, I think a little bit like the Grinch, you know, wondering what had happened to my children because they didn't know how to do this the night before, but suddenly they knew. And what I realized is that when I shifted out of the mode of having the answers and trying to direct and I started asking the questions, I learned that they knew what to do. And I learned that they knew how to do a whole lot more than that. I kept this up for three nights at home, really to shift something inside of my head. And then, you know, a couple of days into that, I started to realize, I bet the people I work with, the people on my management team, don't need me to tell them what to do. 
And I bet they're a whole lot smarter than I am seeing right now. And I started to ask the questions and let the people around me come up with answers. Something magical happens when you make this shift. You know, Liz, that's that's very, very inspiring because what it what it says right there is that as we ask questions to other people, we begin to bring the best out of people by letting them come up with the solutions on their own. I think that's a magical uh, formula to life and relationships with others. Well, we're, uh, we're at the break time, and uh, so we need to take a short break here. This is Alan Olson with America Dreams, Keys to Life Success. We'll be right back with Liz Wiseman. More with Alan Olson and American Dreams is coming up on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back. This is Alan Olson's America Dreams, the Keys to Life Success. We've been visiting here today with Liz Wiseman. Liz is talking about her book, best-selling book on Wall Street, The uh, Multipliers. And we've been talking about the different types of individuals that both influence and diminish behavior. Well, Liz, going back to this, uh, the influential leader. What type of a, a a role model? Who have you come across in your life who's been the most influential example of leadership? Well, you know, I could tell you the ones who are influential to me, but um, let me let me share a couple who actually have been in the news lately. Um, one is Tim Cook. He's the the new CEO at Apple, and I had a great fortune of working. Uh, with Tim Cook and coaching a number of members of his management teams. Um, probably what's so remarkable about Tim Cook is how, not what he does as much as how he thinks. You know, Apple had been on a, a rapid revenue growth. Um, this is a couple years ago. They're back, I think, maybe a mere $40 billion a, a few years ago. Tim is opening up a meeting, a fiscal year planning meeting. These are the meetings where you get your quota for the year. He's got all of his sales executives around the table. And he tells them that the strategic imperative for that year is growth, double-digit growth. And he gives them a big growth number. You know, this is something in the neighborhood of like a $10 billion growth that they're going to put on their business. None of his sales execs are shocked by this. But what shocks them is when he says, this year, I think we can do that without adding incremental headcount into the sales organization. Well, this is shocking because they've been hiring and fueling their growth by adding people and feet on the street. And... One, so they're reeling from this a little bit. One particular executive um, says, Tim, everyone knows you follow a proven linear model for growth. You know, you want a certain revenue number. You need to put a certain amount on the expense line for that. And and try to convince Tim to just add this. He says, Tim, I'll commit to you that revenue number, but let's follow this proven linear model. But Tim isn't stuck in this logic of addition that getting more out of the organization requires just a gluttonous appetite for headcount. Tim is thinking the logic of multiplication. How do I get more from this organization by more deeply utilizing the the talent, the intelligence, the capability that we have inside this organization? And Tim and his executive team went to work on that and fueled that growth, you know, with virtually no or very little headcount. It's a different way of thinking about leading. It's it's about getting more from the resources that already sit inside your organization, resources that are dying to be better utilized. You know, most of us come into work every day knowing we possess more 
talent, intelligence, capability, knowledge, skill than our current jobs require. We find it exhilarating when people engage our intelligence. Tim's a great example of someone who does that. He asks really interesting questions, and I have never seen an executive who listens like Tim Cook. I was blown away the first time I went to meet with him, and he wanted to know what I think. You know, Liz, as, as I'm listening through this process, the, the thought comes to mind, well, you know, Liz, how do, I, how do I sign up to learn about who I am and how I think, and, and, and can I become the multiplier? Do you offer any type of assessment for helping individuals understand their thought process and how they can better fine-tune that? You know, we do, and we, we have a rigorous 360 assessment. You could get access to it on our website. Um, you can get access to it on the website. Where? where, where do you find <laughs> so this? there's two: the multipliersbook.com. You can find access to those assessments, or our our firm's website is thewisemangroup.com. You can get there from either place. We have a rigorous assessment that would allow someone to get a 360 degree view, meaning feedback from their boss, their peers their staff. Um, I have someone who just did it with his, put his spouse in there, his wife in, in, in his, um, his boss category. And you can get a really full picture of how you're leading, where you might be leading as a multiplier, where you might be leading as a diminisher. But you don't even have to do that. You know, um, we've got this simple, simple little assessment on the same website, multipliersbook.com. And it's called, Are You an Accidental Diminisher? It's a self-assessment. It takes no more than three minutes to complete. And there are 10 scenarios in there where ways that we can be, with the very best of intentions, accidentally diminishing, where we may tend to rescue people who really we should step back and let them struggle a bit, or where maybe we jump in and make fast decisions where really we need to turn to debate, or maybe our exuberance for ideas, you know, the tendency to come into work sort of bubbling out new ideas. We think we're sparking the creativity in others, but really we're shutting it down and people become dependent on us to do the thinking. So there's a simple little quiz out there. And then there's an even simpler way. You could ask your colleagues, is there any way that I might be with the very best of intentions, accidentally shutting down the best thinking and idea flows in our organization? You know, it's interesting. So this leadership model that you're outlining not only works in the office, but it also works at home. It's about relationship management, if I'm understanding that. It's about seeing intelligence and capability in people around you. And I think I started to see how this played out at home because as a parent, and particularly a parent of young children, you watch them grow so fast. You watch them grow out of their shoes so fast. And you watch them learn and develop so fast. And you start to realize that your role is to not infuse them with anything. It's to allow that growth to happen, that the capability is there. Um, and it's certainly been my experience having held fairly senior management roles at Oracle and running large organizations there. And I guess I run a bit of a large organization at home for just four <laughs> kids count for a large organization. I think so. They outnumber me four to one. Um, and you start to realize that the leadership skills you develop at work, 
the best leadership skills make for pretty good parenting. And the leadership lessons you learn from being a really, really good and wise parent are transferable back at work. And Alan, as I, I started to see well, this... That, that, let, let me ask you, how easy is it for people to change? In other words, you say, this is what you got to do. You got to compliment or you got to ask more questions. But is it a process that people immediately fall into running down their task list of their to-dos? Or how do you... Walk me through how you change a person, a group, an organization. Good. Well, the, I've spent most of my career working in how do you build capability and change and build skill in people and organizations. And I'll give you the easy way and the hard way. The hard way to do it is to try to um, an ad- adopt a model wholesale. Read the book and say, I want to be a multiplier. I am going to do all of this. And I could tell you of the five disciplines in the book – Each one of them has a number of different practices, and you'd end up trying to do about 40 to 50 things. And my experience is when you have a a wholesale change agenda and something really ambitious, your chances of success go down. And what I found is the people who make the most sustainable, profound change are unambitious, meaning they do a small number of things. In fact, I think the most powerful number here is one. You know, what's one thing that you can do to be more like a multiplier? You know, maybe it's something as simple as, um, I call it supersizing someone's job. And what that means is looking at each person on your team and figuring out what's a stretch challenge that's a size too big. And, And giving them something that's just a little bit uncomfortable, but... You know, just the way you might buy shoes for your preschooler, you know, you don't buy them to fit because they're growing so fast. You buy them a size too big. And when their feet are flopping around, you know, you're a father. What do you say to them? <laughs> You'll grow. You'll yeah. grow. Hold on there. <laughs> You'll grow into it. As, or as one of our readers said in Sydney, he says, he says, oh, I just say, suck it up, princess, you know. <laughs> and it's this idea that people are going to grow into it. You know, this isn't something that's hard to do is to just give every person on your team a job that's or a task or a project that's a size too big. Or maybe you take the extreme question challenge like I did that night at at, at my house where you ask only questions. You lead a staff meeting with nothing but questions. Or maybe it's something as simple as, you know, you tend to jump in when someone's struggling or failing or when someone hands you back the work you delegated to them and says, gee, I'm stuck, what should I do? And maybe it's as simple as just saying, I'm just going to start giving things back to people. So will you actually coach people through this process? And how do you build accountability into that, you know, supersizing or saying, let's do one thing really well? I mean, do you, do you believe in the accountability role of coming back and having them report on their progress towards? Yeah, the, you know, the easiest way to do this is with a coach, you know, whether it's an executive coach, a big part of a role of executive coach is to teach and to help people learn what they already know. But a big part of it is also accountability. So that's a very, very good way to do that. We've done that kind of work with with folks um, and, and, and certainly have seen some people make remarkable, remarkable transformation, um, including one fellow who read the book, sent an email to our account. And all it said was, 
accidental diminisher seeking reform and reformation um, and left his number. And I had this great honor of working with someone who's, who really was having a diminishing effect on other people. And to see him grow and change as a leader, it was really profound. Mm. But you can get this accountability with a colleague, with a peer, with a friend. You know, here's the one thing I'm working on. You know, I always love the, uh, the, the saying when you talk about changes, it's hard to change other people, but you can always change yourself. And this has all been very, very good in, in hearing again about the multipliers versus the diminishers and how do we you know, lift those who, who are around us. So um, getting Liz's book, you can find it on Amazon.com. And a mul- the book Multipliers, you can also go to multipliersbook.com or the Wiseman group.com. Liz, it's been a pleasure having you here today on our show, America Dreams, and um, we enjoy everything that you had to say. It's been my absolute pleasure to join you. Thank you so much, Alan. All right. Well, it's time for a break. We'll be right back after this short message. Visit Ellen's website at groco.com. Welcome back. This is Alan Olson's America Dreams, The Keys to Life Success. We've just heard from Liz Wiseman on how to be a multiplier in your organization. What a phenomenal uh, you know, past 30 minutes that we've had with her. You know, I've observed him many times as working with um, my own organization that, you know, working with others every day, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a common adjustment period in life of trying to... Um, trying to figure out, well, what do I need to do to better motivate, better inspire those who are around me, and also, likewise, continually work on a process of change. Um, In my business as a CPA, I work both in and out of our organization, and I think the key ingredient that I see is before you can really start in on uh, in building the organization, it's uh, it's there's three things that you need to have. That is, in knowing you, liking you, and trusting you. It has to be a mutual relationship in there. Um, so, Carly, what do you think about this concept of uh, diminishers? You know, Alan, I agree. Was also talked about accidental diminishers. Which which type of leader have you observed most often in different organizations that you have worked in and served with? You know, in in the organizations, I think the easier thing to do is 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 to probably more critical. You know, it's easier to find fault with other people, and and uh, you know, you around the water cooler, out of the presence of the other uh, person, you know, to uh, to draw some type of a negative criticism. Probably, you know, uh, you know, people uh, people kind of thrive on that. It's the me too. You know, I. I uh, you know, but I think that the the concept of multipliers is is turning that around. Um, I think personally that in the leadership role, it's a lot about you know how you're able to inspire others to drive them into greater accountability. Um, you know, if individuals are accountable for their actions, then there will be less flaws with leadership, and accountability allows allows for a check and a balance system. Alan, how do you suggest implementing a system of accountability into leadership of any organization? Well, it's uh, I, I think you start with a, a platform of defining your path. You know, where do you want to go? Uh, if you're in an organization that is, uh, you know, it's like the the founding partner of, of Groco. He he once taught me this, Maury Greenstein. He says, you know, in an organization, you're either going to do one or 
or two things. One or the other. Is that you'll either grow or you'll die. You'll never stay stagnant within there. And and so individuals that are within the organization need to define, well, what do I want to be? Where do I want to be in three to five years? How do I want to pick my path? So it first starts with establishing a system of accountability that requires focus in three areas. Number one, define your vision. Define your pathway. Where do you want to take the organization? What do you want to do? And as you outline that path, make sure that you communicate it to those around you. Engage others in the process. You can never build a business by yourself. You can't be a force of one. No man is an island. You know, you, you build the organization with engaging those around you. And as more people join in, the multipliers will, will engage themselves and you'll have a bigger and a successful organization. The last part is to report. Return and report on what you've done. Assignments are given to individuals. Make sure you allow them to come back and be accountable for that. These three steps we often use in our business, and uh, where you define your vision, you communicate it to others, and you return a report, it, it helps to build greater accountability, and then you can earmark or benchmark the successes that you found along the way. It's easy to manage yourself, but it's a real process when you try to manage others. As the system accountability is established, a leader will be more effective in managing others. And I think that's all that Liz was talking about today in the book Multipliers. How do you inspire people to be their best? This is Alan Olson with America Dreams, the keys to life success, where we talk about how to live the life that you want to live. What are your dreams? What do you want out of life? And what defines success? We appreciate you being here today with us on the show. And stay tuned and be with us once again next Saturday morning. Thank you.